Welcome to the second episode of the Ithacast. I'm Duck Sun Nguyen. I'm Seth Murta. And with us today, we have Brian McCraggan, Historic Preservation Planner for the City of Ithaca. We're going to talk about historic preservation, of course, and most specifically, the Nines, which is up for designation soon. So, Brian, I, I think a lot of people in Ithaca would be surprised to learn that the city actually has a historic preservation planner on its staff. Uh, so I thought maybe we could start out with you explaining a little bit about what your responsibilities are as the, as the historic preservation planner. So as the Historic Preservation Planner, I am responsible for reviewing applications for exterior alterations to locally designated properties. It's my responsibility to determine whether something can be reviewed at the staff level or whether it has to go to the full commission for review. Typically, if it's a minor alteration, it's something that I can approve and, you know, a building permit can be issued that day. Uh, If it's something more extensive, a larger project, then I refer it to the Landmarks Commission for review. Other responsibilities include applying for grants to do preservation-related work, like surveying historic properties, um, and also any city projects that relate to historic properties. It's my responsibility to look at them and and comment on any potential impacts they may have on historic resources. So you mentioned the the commission. This is the ILPC. Uh, At City Hall, we like to throw around these acronyms. We have the BPW, we have PEDC, and we have the ILPC, which stands for the Ithaca Landmarks Preservation Commission. So what is your job to staff the ILPC meeting? So what is the, the commission, as you, as you put it? Okay, so the commission, the ILPC, is made up of seven voting members, a secretary, um, that's me, and uh, typically a common council liaison. Uh, formally, I, d- I did do that for a year. Uh, it's currently Donna Fleming. And usually one other staff member is there to record the proceedings. The commission, as I said, has seven members. Many of them have special qualifications related to historic preservation. So there is a uh, woman who has or is receiving her PhD in historic preservation planning. There is another woman on the commission who has her undergraduate degree in historic preservation and her master's in planning. Uh, There are also real estate agents that specialize in the sale of historic properties, uh, as well as owners of historic properties and um, landlords who own designated properties. Uh, So they bring a lot of expertise to the table that they use when evaluating proposals for exterior alterations to their buildings. One of the things I've always noted about Ithaca is that there's a really strong record of saving historic buildings from the wrecking ball in this this community, and a very, I think, a very uh, proud record. And there's a lot of people who are very strong supporters of historic preservation. You've got groups like Historic Ithaca, obviously, that do that do a lot of work. I wonder maybe if you could say a little bit, to the extent that you're aware of that history, um, a little bit about the the historic preservation efforts uh, in Ithaca's past. Right. Uh, so preservation in Ithaca really began in the 1960s, 1970s, urban renewal era. Um, the city witnessed the, the demolition of seven, uh, several significant properties. The Cornell Library, uh, which used to be located uh, next to, well, on, on Bank Alley. It was a, There's a parking lot there, there now. There is right? a parking lot there now. Um, it was Ezra Cornell's first philanthropic gift to the city, and it was apparently an incredibly beautiful building, both internally and externally, and it was demolished. Like, how, this is what blows my mind. Like, how could anybody ever do that? Because I've seen 
old pictures of yeah. this thing, and it's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. idea that you could demolish something with such beauty is astonishing to me. And when and when the city uh, was incorporated in 1888, the council members at the time saw its beauty and recognized its beauty and incorporated it into the city seal. So that's the building that's on every city logo that you see. Um, oh, that's interesting. It's not. It's not the former city hall. So which it's is, not the city it's hall. Not so I didn't know the, that. No. See what you learn yeah, on yeah, the Ithacast. Yeah. yeah. So you know, and, and speaking of the former city hall, that's another property that was demolished and to uh, put up a parking garage. To put up a parking garage. Residents in Ithaca saw the loss of these beautiful resources, and they created this effort to preserve some of the other landmarks that were left. And so the one of the crowning jewels of preservation success is the, is the Clinton House. Mm-hmm. It was in a bad state of disrepair. Historic Ithaca, in its infancy, purchased the building and began an extensive renovation rehabilitation of the building. And that really was the starting point of the preservation movement in Ithaca. And, and from there... Uh, the city adopted a landmarks ordinance in the, I believe, in the mid-1970s, um, and then designated its first districts in the mid-70s as well. The Whit Park, I think, was 1976, so very early. And from there, um, buildings began to be saved. Uh, Boardman Hall, which had been you know, formerly part of, of IC, uh, was was purchased by the county, and they were planning on demolishing it. And there was a groundswell of citizen outcry over its demolition, and they were able to save the building. Uh, DeWitt Mall, I believe, was another property that was threatened with demol- demolition, and it's now a very successful, you know, mixed-use building. And so this all started as a reaction against urban renewal. It right. sounds like. Do you know what was the rationale that that the city leaders at the time used to, when they wanted to? demolish these buildings was it like a maintenance or upkeep issue you know at the time of of flight from the city people were moving out to the suburbs you had suburban malls being built and people were moving out and doing more shopping at those those suburban malls rather than downtown and so there were there were vacancy issues and there were you know blight issues and so people saw urban renewal as a way of clearing out some of that blight and making um, a path for people to to revitalize the downtown and the, and the city. It's one of my least favorite euphemisms, urban renewal. It blows my mind that we got rid of a lot of four or five story buildings, replaced them with single story buildings. And now in the 21st century, or cent- parking lots. In that's some right. Cases. Exactly. <laughs> or parking yeah. Even worse. And yeah. now in the 21st century, we are trying to go back to walkable, dense, multi-use buildings you know i think the conversation used to be where are we going to put the cars and now the conversation is where are we going to put the people yeah. exactly we're returning to <laughs> right. it's like the, the jane jacobs thing of yeah. human-centered cities and that's what i think a lot of people take these efforts for granted i mean it i don't think people realize that like there was a point when the do it mall could have been demolished i mean that that might have been and who knows what would have taken its its place like when you think about it now it's just such an a part of an iconic part of the downtown and like i you can't imagine downtown without it um, right and i think there's i mean i think i i view historic preservation as i know sometimes it, you know the historic preservation camp gets pitted against the economic development camp but i think they're really hand in glove with each other i uh, do i do i i agree with you i think that um Preservation often gets viewed as uh, a way to oppose change or a way to stop development. And, you know, it's, 
it's seen as a very sentimental activity, which is not my perspective on preservation at all. If it was, if it was purely to preserve buildings that are, that are beautiful, I'm not interested in a beauty pageant. I'm really interested in, in how preservation can help revitalize communities, how it, how it can keep them vibrant. Um, you know, there's, there's so much focus on what a building looks like, but is there a conversation about how does that building impact the economy? If it's a designated historic resource and you have to do work on it, you're typically using local labor, um, highly skilled local labor that demands a higher uh, salary or wage than than your traditional contractor. Um, what is its impact on heritage tourism? This is uh, economist Richard Florida's big topic, Rise of the Creative Class. And he talks a lot about how historic buildings are part of the economic fabric of a city, can attract people, uh, tourists, and give a city character. It's, it was what gives your city uniqueness. I mean, because you think about like people come to, to Ithaca, they don't come here to go visit Route 13. I mean, Route 13 looks like every other strip across the country. There's nothing unique about Absolutely. it, right? But there, our downtown is really unique. And the re- one of the big reasons it's unique is that it's got these historic buildings. And that's what and that is a big driver for, for tourism, for economic development, as you're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, it is. Um, a city's historic fabric is is very important to its identity. It, you know, even outside of the, the commercial districts, our neighborhoods are built, are built with um, unique residences that, you know, you're, you're not going to find the same one in another community. And that's what makes us unique. And that's something that, that we should highlight as we as we grow and as we attract people. But let me play devil's advocate for a moment here. If I live in the DeWitt Park Historic District, why can't I just do what I, it's my house, why can't I do it with what I want to my porch? Thanks, Duck. Um, It's <laughs> <laughs> um, a good question, It is a good question. Yeah. So there, it, um, your porch is, is absolutely your property, but it also contributes to the overall character of the neighborhood. And it contributes to the vibrancy of that community and that and that the, the population that lives there and that does business there. And so, if you change your porch, you're not only impacting your property, but you're impacting the character of the whole. But this is an expensive city to live in, and these restrictions make it difficult for me to afford to maintain my property. If you are an owner-occupied property, Duck's really good at playing the devil's advocate. I just want to point that out. <laughs> um, if you are an owner-occupied property, there are state incentive programs that can help you, which are on the at risk right now. So support the state uh, homeowner tax credit program. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you are you own your home and you uh, want to change your porch, there's a twenty percent tax credit for you to do that work to offset some of the cost of of maintaining that porch. If you are a commercial property, there are both state and federal incentive programs that can help you. Twenty uh, percent uh, state and a twenty percent federal income tax credit that can cover essentially forty percent of rehabilitation costs, major rehabilitation costs of a historic property. There's also a local property tax abatement. So if the work that you're doing raises the assessed value of your property, um, you're, you are eligible for a local property tax abatement on that increase in assessed value. That's great, actually, because we get a, a lot of questions about abatements for, for smaller property owners, not just the ones building massive new projects. 
about the fact that a lot of the houses in Ithaca are not that attractive. I mean, even my house was just workforce housing um, for laborers. This is a bit of a leading question because you gave a great answer about this with regard to a very controversial topic, Chacona, and I liked it a lot. I think that aesthetics are purely a personal opinion. And, you know, the way that a, that historic resources reflect the character of a community is really important and should be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. Ithaca may not have a collection of the most high-style properties in, in the state or in the country. You know, some of them were just worker housing. Some of them were just Sears catalog houses that were constructed to provide housing for people who wanted to live in the community. But they reflect... They clearly reflect the history of Ithaca and how it grew into the city that it is today. I think you're referring to our discussion about the Chacona block and how some people felt that it wasn't an attractive building. I disagree. Uh, but I believe that it, it is a great example of what a community member did that met his own needs, that met the needs of the community, and it clearly reflects the history of the community in that particular neighborhood. All right, since we're on the subject of the Chacona block, just for the sake of anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, this was a very, very contentious vote on Common Council a few months ago. And what I found sort of confusing about it was that term Chacona block, because I've, I've lived in Ithaca a long time, and I, I've never called it that before. You know, if I was to call it something, I would probably say uh, College Town Bagels in College Town. Uh, if I was referring to the building, I'd probably say the College Town Bagels building. So it's, so it's interesting that you said that you didn't recognize the name, but until probably the 1960s, 70s, it was recognized as as that. Um, so the building was named after the person who built it, um, John Chacona. Uh, he came to America as a very young boy uh, from Greece, and he came to Ithaca and established a very successful business with his, um, I believe it was his cousin. And, you know, through that success, he was able to raise the capital and, you know, the the support of a local bank, which was incredible at the time, to build the Chacona block. And that, so it was known as the Chacona it was known, block. It was historically the... known as the Chacona block. Oh, that's interesting. Wow. Um, and so, somehow, you know, 1960s, that got lost. I'm I'm not sure why. You know, some of the buildings that have names like that, it's it's clearly clearly imprinted on the building. You know, the Griffin Block, you know, mm-hmm. people recognize right. that as Simeon's. But the, the really important thing about John Chacona is that he was a Greek immigrant that came here with nothing, came to a country that wasn't exactly supportive or uh, wasn't willing to embrace uh, Greek immigrants. Uh, shortly after he arrived, the federal government enacted uh, limitations on the number of people that could come from Greece to America. In communities like ours, um, Greek immigrants were kind of shunned. They were they formed their own communities, and they didn't uh, they didn't have the warm welcome that John Chacona did. Yeah, and just to kind of give a little bit of context, I mean, what what happened was that the the Ithaca Landmarks Preservation Commission, I think, with the support of the historic preservation preservation community here in Ithaca, recommended that we designate this building in College Town the College Town Bagels building, as I call it, or the Chacona block, as as a historic building. And the property owner is Student Agencies, which is a nonprofit. They do a lot of good work with uh, with a lot, mostly Cornell students, although I, I think they're not affiliated with Cornell. 
they they work with Cornell students, but I they rec- they don't receive funding from Cornell, and um, they do their services do extend beyond the Cornell population. So they do oh, have things that, that yeah huh. they they do they have moving services and things hmm. that um, help local residents. So they they get most of their their income comes from the rents on this building and they had an interest in redeveloping it. So demolishing the current structure that's there and building up, we, we approved new zoning, which I think allowed for us uh, like a height increase. So they wanted to, to redevelop it, build a new building. And then the, the, the rents that they would get from that would help to sustain their mission, their organization. So it turned into this big fight with the ILPC made its recommendation on common council. We kind of split into two camps, those supporting the designation, uh, which Duxon did. And I did, and, and those who were supporting the redevelopment, kind of led by uh, Alderman Steve Smith of the Fourth Ward, or as I like to call him, Al- Alderman Steve, I hate history Smith. <laughs> but he's, Steve's a friend of mine, so I feel like I can rib him a little bit. Uh, but it got very, very contentious on council, and we, we took a vote, and it was 5-5. Five, five, and the mayor broke the tie. So, that's, so on common council, when we have a 5-5 five, five vote, the mayor breaks the tie. And this is like, I can't tell you like how rare this is that this happens. It's, it's so unusual. I think I, I've been on common council for six years. I could probably count on one hand the amount of times that we've had a, a split vote like that. So there was a split vote for uh, stone sidewalks in the East Hill Historic District. So something about <laughs> historic <laughs> preservation that sort of brings out these split votes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so split votes, very, very rare. Doesn't happen very often. And in this case, the mayor uh, voted against the designation, which meant that the the designation didn't pass. I got to say, I was pretty cut up over this one because I did. I, I really got pretty passionate about it and believing that that building should be preserved. I realized that five of my colleagues on Common Council feel differently. I was I, very much on the fence. It was really difficult. It was a very tough vote. And at some point I knew that here's a little, I guess, uh, inside baseball. I did not expect Donna Fleming to vote against designation. And when she did, I pretty much knew it was over because I knew at 5-5 the mayor was going to – he had said at, at planning, at, at your committee, Seth, that he opposed designation. And so I knew at best it would be a tie and that you know he would vote in that direction. And so it was dramatic for sure for multiple reasons. And I think it was dramatic for us too because we're a pretty collegial group. You know, we don't usually have this level of contention. I mean, we have lots of debates, healthy debates, but this one got pretty contentious. It was like it was like the, what the county legislature does at like every single one of their meetings, right? It's like, but we, we're not like that. We're a little more collegial than they are. And so it was, it was a tough one, I think, for sure. But the, the funny thing is I think after the whole thing was done, I mean, it took us like months, I felt like. We were debating this thing. We got all these people like writing us, like people writing on behalf of student agencies, people, Cornell alums writing us, telling us like to vote for the designation. It was, I think I was like, there was a hashtag at one point, hashtag Chicona forever. I was pushing that on Twitter a little bit. It, it got, you know, there's some trash talk between Steve Smith and I. It got, it got pretty intense. And after the dust was settled, you know, we we're all kind of thinking, okay, we can, we can take a breather. And it turns out, <laughs> that like literally four months after this whole thing, we're we're now dealing with what is potentially another controversial <laughs> historic designation in College Town. So, Brian, let me ask you, what is it? This is the nines, the upcoming nines designation. What is it about College Town? 
and these historic designations. So the ILPC is focused on on College Town right now um, because they they see that any historic resources left in College Town, which which I should note, there are very few uh, that I feel are are eligible for designation. Um, they're threatened. There is, you know, a huge uh, push for development in College Town. Uh, real estate values are incredibly high, and if the ILPC doesn't act now, they're going to lose any opportunity to designate anything or keep anything of historic merit in College Town. You know, there's a development proposal. What what we can expect from that, and there right. is a designation and. So it's another contentious moment. So we're <laughs> we're going to be talking about this at the, at the next planning and economic development committee, March fourteenth. So mark your calendars, six p.m. March fourteenth in council chambers <laughs> at city hall. The nines designation will be on the agenda. Uh, and the question. So let's talk about the nines. I mean, this one is is a little bit different. Um, I think that you know there's. There's, you know, my sense when the whole Chicona debate was going on is that there there seems to be more community support for designating the nines potentially, um, because the building has this history. I mean, it was a fire station, um, and it's you know I, I I can I I feel like I can sense a little bit more support potentially for the nines. I would I would agree. I think more people more people understand its significance. More people understand why it's important. You know, the building still reads very much as a fire station. If you if you even hear a whisper about what the building used to be, you can look at the building and tell that, oh, that, that makes absolutely sense. Absolute sense of question. Of course it was a fire station. You know, a lot of the, I think the interest in preserving the history and the culture there is kind of attached to the business. But we're really not talking about the business, right? We're talking about the building itself. Um, so I, I guess my question to you, and I get maybe the wider historic preservation community is to what extent should your attachment to a particular business enter into your decision to designate something? Is that something that's like completely irrelevant? It's a good question. I think that in any property, it's impossible to divorce the current use of the building from its historic use. And you know, from the Chicona block and the College Town Bagel connection and the student agencies connection to, you know, the Nines fire station and the Nines restaurant. It's very difficult to to separate the two. But it in some ways that does become a, a part of the historic record. It becomes a part of the the conscious memory of the building. In my opinion, I think that, you know, if you're looking at designating a building you shouldn't look at its current use. You shouldn't look at the current business that's there. You shouldn't look at the current property owner. You should look at the resource and the resource only. And does its historic merit warrant designation? That's very difficult to do. You know, there's there's no way to preserve the nine's business if the property owners or the business owners don't want to sell the business or, or don't, you know, pass that legacy on to someone else. And they're and and they're in no way obligated to do so. What about the owners who bought it in 1980, looking forward to this massive windfall that they can only get if the the person they sell it to can develop the six story building that they are proposing? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, could they for did they have a crystal ball and could they see that the value of that property was going to be? You know what is it a hundred times what they paid for it in 1980? I doubt that. Um, 
You nor know, could they have predicted to, to devil's advocate myself. Nor could they have predicted council's actions to rezone all of College Town. Absolutely, I was just going to mention that um, the value of that property is based on the upzoning of that neighborhood. You know, if it was if it was a property in any other neighborhood in the city, it would not have that value. But because it was upzoned and because it's in College Town, it has that perceived value. The value of pro- of the property, if it was to remain as it is, is seven hundred and seventy five thousand dollars. That's still an incredible price for a building that has a restaurant in it and really no other use. So it's actually two buildings, uh, which people may not realize. The rear part is wood frame and older, and the front part is brick. Uh, That's correct. So the 1894-95 portion of the building was built to meet the demands of the neighborhood. It took nearly 30 minutes for any kind of firefighting services to make it up the hill to fight fires, which is pretty incredible for a neighborhood where most of the buildings were wood-framed and one spark could ignite a fire that would that would completely devastate a neighborhood. Hmm. So in a partnership, the um, Cornell community and uh, residents on East Hill formed a fire company, the W.H. Sage Hose Company, which uh, num- became the number nine fire station. The the architecture firm of Gibbon, excuse me, Vivian and Gibb donated the designs for the first fire station in College Town. And it was built on Dryden Road, uh, the corner of Dryden Road and College Avenue. And it served its function for about a decade. And then pretty quickly after it was built, the uh, the city realized and the community realized that that fire station was not adequate to serve College Town. So they entered into negotiations with another property owner in College Town. He traded land and paid to have the fire station moved to the land that he uh, he offered to the city. And then the city built an addition to the building, um, which is the the what is visible from College Avenue today, the brick and stucco building uh, in 1907, 1908. And that is another, it was designed by another important uh, firm in Ithaca, Gibbon Waltz. I mentioned these architecture firms, and you're probably not familiar with other their other works, but for Vivian and Gibb, they're responsible, responsible for the Cascadilla Boathouse and the pavilion complexes at Stewart Park. Mm-hmm. So, oh, wow. you know, buildings that really revolutionize the character of the waterfront. Um, for the addition to the building, which was designed by um, Gibb and Waltz, they're responsible for the Masonic Temple downtown and Rand Hall on the Cornell University campus. So they both firms had pretty significant commissions that really shaped the architectural character of the community. Hmm. So the the building is divided in these; it's two separate buildings. And my understanding is that the the rear of the building is a much worse shape than the front of the building. So this question has come up um, among the Common Council about whether it would be possible to, like, segment it. Uh, but you, your understanding is that this isn't something that's typically done. It's not something that's typically done. You, you designate the tax parcel. You know, there, so there's no way to segment the, um, the designation to designate only a portion of it. There, mm-hmm. are, there are other ways to look at the, the property. Um, there are you know, other resources in historic districts where a portion of the property is considered contributing or, you know, reflects the historic past of the property and, and other portions of the property that are non-contributing or, or do not reflect that historic past. 
the condition of the building is a tricky subject. Right. I think for a lot of reasons. Yeah. But. Yeah. I mean, I think because this also came up with the, the Chicona block, uh, this question of, cause student agencies, the owner was saying that the property was in, in terrible shape uh, and using that as a justification for why you'd want to demolish it. You know, you look at like we, as we were saying before, there's a lot of cases in Ithaca's past where you have buildings, historic buildings, incredible buildings like the, the Clinton house that were in really bad shape, but they were designated because it was it was recognized that they added value to the community. Um, I I think personally, this is my my personal view that you know that that argument that a, a building is in is dilapidated or deteriorated is not always a great case for why it should not be designated. I I would agree. Um, I think that to allow a property owner's um, neglect of a property to be used as an out for a designation is really unfair to other property owners in the city who maintain their properties, regardless of any, you know, anticipated gain in, in property value in the future. I have a question just about the, the future designations in, in the city. Cause we, we've been focusing a lot on, on college town. It does seem like college town is kind of becoming like the Alamo of the historic preservation community. There's been a lot of attention on it and like rallying around these, these projects. What about the rest of the city? I mean, when I think about like duck and I represent the second ward, I think there's a lot of opportunities for historic designation. in The second ward, I don't, I think people will be surprised to learn that the North facade of the commons, for instance, isn't historically protected. I was told just, I was having a conversation with uh, John Guthridge last night who told me that the Elks building, the Cornell Daily Sun building isn't, isn't locally designated. I mean, that actually really surprised me because that seems like such a iconic building downtown. I mean, so are there opportunities to, for the, for the ILPC and I guess you to sort of expand your horizon beyond college town and maybe focus on some other areas? Absolutely. And we are looking, or, or, or at least I'm looking at other properties outside of college town. So, um, the planning committee recently reviewed a grant application for an expansion of the East Hill Historic District to include properties on Aurora Street and Lynn Street and East Court Street. That's certainly not in College Town. The Commons is is perennially a focus. Um, we recognize its historic value. Uh, it is listed on the National Register of Historic Places, but it isn't locally designated, so it doesn't have the same level of uh, protection as a locally designated resource. But again, it's all about where the the threat is and and if there was an infinite amount of money and an infinite infinite amount of um staff resources it would be it would be easy to designate all of the buildings that that are worthy of designation in the city well i think that may be a wrap i mean i i really do appreciate the work that you're doing um i think it's I mean, as you said, I think it's incredibly important for for the for the history of our city for the culture of our city. Um, and I think that, uh, yeah, I think I just, I'm very appreciative of your work and also the ILPC's work. I think it it is something that, you know, adds an incredible amount of value to our community. I agree. I mean, I'm very pro-development. I love seeing the new buildings that are rising throughout the city. I think progress is great, but that there's economic and cultural value in preserving some of the history of the city too. I think I think it's 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 a great point to make that you know preservation doesn't doesn't stop development it can complement development. Um, I would I would 
I would argue that that no preservationist believes that that every old building should be designated. It's important to preserve buildings that have uh, that contribute to the the character of the community and that reflect its historic past. But in order for a neighborhood or a community to to remain vibrant, there is an understanding that there has to be a certain amount of change, mm. and I think that preservation and change can complement each other. And that's something that gets often lost in the conversation. Well said. Well said. Let you have the last word. Thank you so much, Brian, for joining us today. We really appreciate your insight and the background that you gave us today. Thanks. Thank you. It's a wrap.